good morning again, everybody. You doing okay? Boy, I tell you, it um, got up this morning bright and early, brought the dog out in my t-shirt. I had shorts on and other things. Um, yes, yeah, sorry for loading you up with that image. Um, <laughs> and um, I decided that the best way forward is to um, start wearing a sweater. I cannot believe I put it on this morning, the sweater that I wear under my winter coat, and I'm thinking, man, like this is the first layer toward winter. Oh, Lord. May summer continue. Anybody else feeling that kind of itch a little bit? Second week of school went very well. I'm talking to people and parents and teachers and students. You're doing okay, so keep praying for them. Keep asking. If you've got kids around your neighborhood in your homes, you know, I know you're talking to them, but, you know, if you don't have kids and all that kind of stuff, uh, we have a teacher in our building, and I was talking to her this week, Ruth and I, and I just said, hey, how's it going? And she said, oh, we've had a good couple of weeks if you stay organized. And I said, well, I want you to know we're thinking about you. And uh, so anyway, uh, just kind of, it's kind of nice to check in with people. Okay, so it's our third installment on the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, so let's stand together. And our text this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And this is what it says. And to the angel of the church... In Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, by the way, Balak is the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not... I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him and her a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your sense or our sense of your presence in this service. And Lord, we pray today that you, Father, would be glorified, and we ask, Lord, that everything that you've accomplished in Jesus, Lord, would be just made applicable to our lives through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is an amazing thing, Father, that we are your sons and your daughters, that we are brothers and sisters together in the family of God. And so we ask now that the same Holy Spirit that makes all of that possible in our lives would give us what the text says this morning, ears to hear, spiritual ears to hear, hearts and minds to understand, 
And Lord, as we go out from this place, as we turn off our device this morning, that you would help us to live out what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ, what it means to be Christians, and that we would do that in tangible and physical and meaningful ways in our homes, in our relationships. And Lord, in those places where we get our services and those that we interact with during the week, we thank you, we praise you, and ask all of this, of course, in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, as we're coming to the end of summer, many of us have been in a canoe. Or, at least most of us get the general idea of the dynamics involved in canoeing. Or maybe, like me, you have found yourself entering or exiting a canoe from a dock. Mm Mm-hmm. And have found that with one foot in the canoe and one foot on the dock, your greatest regret is that you didn't pay attention in gymnastics class better. Anyone, everyone knows that a canoe is very easy to tip one side or the other. And that it is difficult to maintain balance in a canoe, either when you're getting in it or out of it, or while you're in it, you have to pay attention. Now, this is similar to the dynamic and the predicament or the dilemma that the saints at Pergamum found themselves. In a balancing act, not in a canoe, but between two worlds. One foot planted firmly in the dock of God's truth and the other foot in the unsteadiness of life. And sometimes it feels like we're doing the splits between two worlds, the physical and the spiritual, the biblical and ancient and the contemporary and the sacred and the secular. But how do we you and I as individual Christians, and us as a church, glad tidings as a whole, as a church family. How do we remain faithful to Jesus, true to his word, and at the same time follow his direction to influence the world around us with truth, and yet not sell out to the culture that we are trying to, to influence or to put it another way how do we avoid the trap of being seduced by the spirit of the age now the church or the Christians at Pergamum faced a similar situation then that you and I do today that brings us then to our text Now, in each of the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus is portrayed differently and uniquely to each church. To Pergamum, Jesus is described as the one who holds, or has rather, the sharp two-edged sword. 
right out of the gate, we begin to understand by that description that one of the issues that's facing the church in Pergamum revolves around the issue of truth. Now, some of us who are more familiar with the biblical uh, text probably can recall Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 where it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And earlier in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, we have these words that in his hand, in Jesus' right hand, this hand, is the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the image of a sharp two-edged sword coming from the sheath of Jesus' mouth presents him as the one who distinguishes, who parses, who separates truth and falsehood. Now the primary issue in Pergamum revolves around truth. Now here's some things that we may want to know about Pergamum. First of all, it, it was Pergamum was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It also housed one of the most magnificent libraries that actually rivaled the famous library in Alexandria in Egypt. It had 200,000 parchments, which is equivalent to our books. And the word parchment actually comes from the name Pergamum. The Pergamene, uh, the Pergamene Charta or the Pergamene Sheet was actually invented there and was manufactured there. Pergamum was also a cultural center. It was known for its intellectual and its academic community. It was a university town or their equivalent of our universities, very much like Athens, Greece was in the time of the Apostle Paul. It had art galleries and it had concert halls and it had theaters. But it also had different types of temples. Like Smyrna and Ephesus, it had a temple to the Roman emperor. And of course, the same laws applied that in Pergamum, every citizen once a year had to burn incense at the foot of the statue of Caesar and declare that Caesar is Lord, which was highly problematic for Christians. There was a temple to Zeus there that had a 40-foot high altar that was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It could be seen from any, any vantage point in the entire city of Pergamum. And there was the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius, son of Apollo, the Greek god of medicine, was there. And this is where it gets interesting. Asclepius was considered the god of healing. Actually, he was considered the savior god, and Christians shuddered any time that title was used. 
Asclepius' temples throughout the ancient world were the closest thing to hospitals in the ancient world. But the healing techniques and the health treatments were incorporated into religious ceremonies where the serpent god Asclepius was worshipped. They had what is known as a healing tunnel. It was called the sacred way. And anybody that was looking for healing or needing healing was given hallucinogenic drugs and they were walked down the steps of this tunnel, this sacred way. And under the influence of these drugs, they would enter the tunnel and snakes would, be, would come through the ceiling and they would walk through this amidst these snakes. Now, if you're anything like I am, you are cringing inside right now. I hate snakes. And mice. And rats. And squirrels who are rodents. Just cute ones. And as they went through this tunnel, there would be whispering voices that would say to the patients, you will be healed. All praise to Asclepius, who is healing you. Be healed. Asclepius has touched your body. Glory and honor to Asclepius. You are healed. Now, is that not creepy? They tell us that some patients were actually healed. Other patients died of snake bites. And many people emerged from the tunnel completely insane. But stories of exotic healings brought people from all around the Mediterranean to Asclepius' temple. Also, the famous physician Galen, some of you history buffs will know that, was actually born there. Now, believe it or not, believe it or not, this is not the biggest concern. The biggest concern at Pergamum is this. Pergamum's nickname in the vein of the same vein as where Las Vegas, Las Vegas, Nevada is referred to as Sin City, Pergamum was referred to as Satan's city. Pergamum, the word, means fortified, elevated height. Height. Now compare that with this. In Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 to 15 that speaks of Satan's sin and his subsequent fall from heaven. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, five I wills. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights, the heights 
of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to show. To the far reaches of the pit. In Luke's gospel chapter 10 verse 17. The disciples come back from a ministry expedition that Jesus sent them out on seven of them, actually. When they came back, they were very excited that even the evil spirits obeyed them. They were driving out demons. And Jesus warned them and said to them, be careful. Do not rejoice that you have the authority to drive out evil spirits. Because it can lead to spiritual pride, which was Satan's undoing. Pergamum, fortified, elevated, height, is also Satan's city. Or as Jesus says in our text in verse 13, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. So this is the biggest concern. That Satan's stronghold seems to be greater in Pergamum than it does in other places. That Satan is portrayed as the one behind the curtain who is pulling the levers and who is pushing the buttons and who's pulling the strings. Satan's ambition is portrayed as from the very beginning to be in charge, his primary objective is see, to be seated above all others, including God and especially God. His strategy. His strategy is confusing the issues, blurring the lines, muddying the waters. And nowhere is this more the case than when it comes to Truth, particularly truth as it relates to matters of religion, matters of spirituality and spiritual belief of human existence and human life and human sexuality. One of the questions being asked today is the question of truth. And the patron saint of the question of truth is none other, of course, than Pontius Pilate. And we read in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 38, where he comes to Jesus or he is interviewing Jesus or he is um, um, prosecuting Jesus. And he says to Jesus, what is truth? And the Bible says, and after that he said this, he went outside to the Jews. Don't you wish that he would have just hung on long enough for Jesus' answer. It would have totally changed the entire text and probably the entire world. But he didn't. He didn't. And therefore, there is a lot of confusion about what is true. We have seen a change in the concept of truth. We were trained to discover truth. But now truth is no longer discoverable, it is created. And so whatever we, whatever you, whatever I think is true, is true. One of the criticisms, of course, made against Christianity is our claim to truth. 
that one of the most celebrated for us as Christians and most controversial and challenged statements in the entire Bible is John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And behind all of this confusion and twisted ideas and uncertainty and blurred lines about truth is a spiritual being where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. And that brings us to this. Jesus is the wielder of the sharp two-edged sword. Now, in our text, Jesus gives us three examples that delineate the clear line between two main groups or two main factions or parties in the church at Pergamum. One is positive, two are negative. The first example is Antipas, my faithful witness, as Jesus calls him, and those that are included in his party, his camp, his group. Now, we don't know who Antipas was. All we know is that he is described by Jesus as being a faithful witness who was murdered, martyred for what he believed and what he taught. We get our word witness from the Greek word martos. When Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, he means martos. You will be my martyrs. You will be my witnesses. And so these are those in the congregation at Pergamum who fit into the camp of Antipas, my faithful martos, my faithful witness. Now this is encouraging. What's not encouraging is the next two examples. The first one is the teaching of Balaam. Now Balaam's story is told to us in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers chapters 21 to 25 and chapter 31. Balaam is a prophet for hire. And he is employed by Balak, the king of, Bab king of Moab, to curse Israel. But the problem is simply this. Every time Balaam opens his mouth to utter a curse, out comes a blessing. So because Balaam cannot curse them, he comes up with a plan. And he says to Balak, we can't curse them, so let's do this. If we can't beat them, let's join them. So Balaam and Balak devise a plan to use the Moabite women, sorry ladies, to seduce the Israeli men, sorry men, into sexual immorality. And by following Balaam's advice, they make Israel their friend. 
and they become friends with Israel. And the issue that's going on here is about compromise. It's about being absorbed and eventually being corrupted. They could not curse them, so they corrupted them. And then there is this. Now I want you to follow me here. Balaam and Balak's approach, their tactic, is absolutely brilliant. Balak's original goal is twofold. He wants to, first of all, diminish Israel. He wants to reduce them to nothing. And in so doing, secondly, eliminate them as a threat to his kingdom of Moab. Now let's make the spiritual connection. This is Satan's agenda as well. Satan's agenda is to see them and us, you and me, diminished so that we no longer become a threat to his kingdom. And so we are diminished and therefore eliminated. That's the plan. Whatever we may think or whatever idea or image we have of Satan, remember this. Satan is not stupid. He is a highly intelligent being and he is an exceptional theologian. And he knows how it works. Because God is simultaneously perfect love and perfect holiness. You follow me so far? Satan knows that if he can get them in Pergamum and us at Glad Tidings to compromise, then they and we will be able to be absorbed into the culture, into the spirit of the age. And then, when they are and we are absorbed, we eventually become corrupted. But it doesn't stop there. You see, once we become corrupted, God will correct them and us. And when God punishes, corrects us, judges us, we become diminished as a result. Or we have the potential of becoming diminished. And when we come to that place, Satan has eliminated us as a threat to his kingdom. You see, because God is perfect love and perfect holiness, he will not stand by and allow them back there at Pergamum and us today at Glad Tidings Church to sin against him without penalty. As my mother used to say, you're not going to get away with it. Your father is coming home. But at the same time, Balak's, Balaam's, and Satan's goal will be accomplished. They will be, we will be 
diminished and at the same time we will be eliminated as a threat to Satan's kingdom. See, this is why Satan seduces us. This is why he seduces you and me. He can't curse us because we're the people of God. He can't curse us because we're the people of God. We are covered by the blood. No access. So he must seduce us to compromise. And with compromise comes being absorbed. We're no longer different or separate. And then as we are absorbed, we become corrupted and then we come to judgment. And I read the words of 1 Peter 4.17. It's not in your notes. Where Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with me, with us, with you, then what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And Jesus says in verse 16, Therefore repent, if not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Are we okay? All right. Can we go on? The third example is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we met the Nicolaitans in our first installment in the series in the church of Ephesus. Their teaching is very similar to Balaam's. They are condemned for not just their false teaching and their secular and rather their um, sexual immorality, but for deliberately leading people astray. Hold that thought. Eighty years ago, when Pastor Kevin and I were in Bible college, 80 years ago, 40 for you, 40 for me. There you go. When we're in Bible college, the thing to do, it was a thing to do, is that when you came in as a class, you were given a Greek name for your class. It was what they did. Pastor Kevin's 1981, right? 1981, Pastor Kevin's class was doulos. It's the Greek word. Actually, it means slave, but it's best translated servants. So your class was a bunch of servants, and hence, great job you're doing, by the way. We love you. Isn't he doing a great job? Yes, indeed. He's the, listen, I tell people, I tell him and I tell people all the time, Pastor Kevin is wired for pastoral care. If there's got to be top 10, if there's got to be a top 10 pastoral care pastors in Canada, he's got to be in that list. He's wired for it. He does a good job. Yes, you can applaud. <laughs> Our class a year later, 1982, our name was Nakao. Nakao comes from, actually it's where we get the word Nike, by the way. It comes from the Greek word Nakao. That's where Nike comes from. It comes actually for us in our 1982 class of Bible college from Romans chapter 8, verse 37, and you'll recognize this, some of you know. In all these things we are made more than conquerors, Nakaos. To him who loved us. Now, the name Nicolaitan comes from two words. Nakao, which means to conquer. And Laetan, we think, means laity or the people. It means conquer the people. 
or better, the destruction of the people. Both the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans deliberately lead people astray by seducing them into sexual immorality which leads to compromise being corrupted and absorbed and that created a stumbling block for the saints Pergam. And according to what Jesus says, there is going to be hell to pay, literally, for those who deliberately and intentionally lead other people astray. The sharp two-edged sword that comes from the sheath of Jesus' mouth is two-edged. On the one side, it is the sword of judgment. It is a soldier's weapon. Jesus says, I'll come and I'll war against them. But on the other side, it is a surgeon's scalpel. And either way, you and I are going to undergo the sword that comes from the sheath of Jesus' mouth. Either we are going to experience the judgment of his sword, or we are going to experience Dr. Jesus, the great physician's scalpel, where he cuts away the cancerous infection in them, and in us as individuals and in this body as a, as a whole, the church in Pergamum in Asia Minor and the church in Sudbury, Ontario. So we and it can thrive. Jesus is judge and he is, metaphorically speaking, spiritual surgeon. Either way, them then, us now, or we're going to undergo the sword that comes from the sheath of Jesus' mouth. But we haven't answered our question yet. We began with asking this question, how do we as Christians, individual Christians, believers, and Glad Tidings Church as a whole, how do we remain faithful to Jesus, true to his word, and at the same time follow his direction to influence the world around us with the truth without selling out to the culture that we are trying to reach? Or how do we avoid the trap of being seduced by the spirit of the age? This is our tension. Now, I think that the most obvious suggestion for this is one that we all know, and I'll say it is stay close to Jesus. It's the most obvious. Stay close to Jesus. 
The key to our well-being spiritually as individuals is the same as the key to the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. We have to stay close to Jesus. We have to be connected to Jesus. He is our lifeline. He is our spiritual pipeline. But the second one is this. The second suggestion for being able to answer those questions is soft on people, hard on the problem. This is what Thessalonians 2 says. Paul is speaking. He says, but we were gentle. Gentle. Among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And now I'd like to talk about my new granddaughter. Ellie, but I won't. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of our God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Always remember that people are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And I know there's a thing called tough love, and that's a whole other tension that we have to manage. But one of our most urgent tasks is to live in our world in such a way that people are driven to ask the reason for the hope that we have. And if you don't think people are looking for hope, We're not paying attention. Listen to what Peter says. He says, but in your heart, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. That's the one side of our tension. But this is the other side. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have or that is in you. And the last line we forget sometimes. Do it with gentleness and respect. The third suggestion that I want to make is simply this. What are we for and what are we against? Now, I grew up, and and I've moved on from this, but I grew up in a spiritual environment in church where we all knew what we were against. It was preached all the time. The focus was primarily on what we're against. And we're against Catholics and Pope, and we're against this and this and this and this. And I got to tell you, it took me forever to figure out what we were for. And I decided a long time ago that my focus in pastoral ministry was not going to be what I'm against, but what and who I'm for. To start with, I'm for God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. I'm for the Bible as the Word of God, as the only authority. I'm for the gospel. I'm for the church. I'm for this church, Glad Tidings Church. And I'm for you. I'm for us. That's the start with. 
I think we all know that when we attack somebody else's point of view or their position on a thing, the most likely outcome is that we are going to reinforce what they actually believe then influence them. The more opposition people encountered, the more entrenched they become in what they believe. Now, every parent and every person who ever dated somebody that your parents did not want you to date knows this. We say as parents sometimes, or have said, I do not want you dating that person. What's the result? <laughs> uh-huh, that's right. We just end up pushing them together. And that's a tension. It's a delicate tension that we have to manage. How many of us know the lesson of the lobster? Now, I'm from Newfoundland, so you've got to go with me on this one. How many of you know the lesson of the lobster? Do you know how to get a lobster to open its claw? You know how to do that? Put something in the other claw. And they'll automatically open that claw. Jesus makes an incredibly bold statement in John chapter 12, verse 32. Where he says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, Jesus has his own magnetism. He has magnetism. And Jesus is the one that we want to put in the other claw so that people will let go What's in their other claw? But let me finish with this. Jesus also knows the law of the lobster. And in our claw, we may be bound by sexual immorality compromise, we've become, become absorbed, and the truth is that our faith, some of us, we're just going through the motions, and we're in the process or on the way to becoming corrupted. And Jesus says, or he offers in our text, something for the other claw. He says, I'll give you spiritual food that you know nothing of that will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. He says, not only that, but I will give you a place in my kingdom. I will give you a white stone. Peter says... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the third thing that Jesus puts in our other clause, this. In the spirit and the tradition of Apostle Paul and Simon Peter, a name that's written on that stone. Everybody that has been transformed, everybody that has been changed, gets a new self, a new beginning, a new creation, a new name. And Jesus says, I'll give you these three things. I'll put these in this claw. And you let go of those. And you will find that what you have in this claw will be more satisfying and more rich and fulfilling and eternally viable than anything you have in this claw. So all over the room, online today. What do you got in your claw that you need to let go of? Jesus wants to give you spiritual life and hope and truth and food. He will satisfy your soul. He wants to give you a, a new place in the kingdom and a new name. How about it? How about it? Would you be willing to let go of what's in this claw for this? And Jesus says, if you will, you'll never be the same. Now, what about us as Christians? You didn't think you were going to get out of that easy, did you? What about us as Christians? What's in our claw that shouldn't be? And what is Jesus speaking to you and me about this morning? I can only tell you what he's speaking to me about. I'm not going to, of course, because it's none of your business. And he's going to speak to you about what's in your claw. What is it? Is it compromise? You look at your life from over the last years, decades, compromise? Have you been absorbed? Where there's no difference between us Monday to Saturday than there is between anybody else. Close your eyes, would you please? Father, in this room and online, you're doing your work now. The Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is speaking to our lives. You're talking to us. And there are those this morning that are listening or are watching that have not yet surrendered their life to you. And you are calling them, and you have been calling them, and you have been talking to them, and they know that there's something going on, and they don't totally understand it, but you're saying, if you say yes to what I offer to you, I will change your life forever. And I pray that they would say yes today. 
Father, to your offer of love in Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, make it rich and real in their hearts and lives today that this would be the day of yes. But Father, for those of us this morning who are believers, and we fit squarely in the church at Glad Tidings, Sudbury. We're Christians, we're believers. But you have some things against us. And today is the day that we can let them go. So Father, we ask today that your Holy Spirit would just work and move. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Pastor Scott, would you come please? Bring your team. And the second song that we sang this morning, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, got my own magnetism. When I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all flesh. So I'm not here to talk about what is in the one claw. You can identify that yourself. I'm here to tell you about what Jesus is going to offer you. Would you stand with us, please? And Pastor Scott is going to lead us in that song, and as he does this morning, we're a little over time, but what are we going to do the rest of the afternoon? As he leads us in that song, I want us to think about, as it applies to us, what do we got in our claw? that we need to let go of so that we can experience the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as, we're, as Pastor Scott is leading us, as he is singing for us this morning, I want us to take a moment to reflect on what is it that we have in our hand, in our claw, that needs to be released in the face of what Jesus Christ has to offer to us. Pastor Scott. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He is the first, the last, the one who matters most. And He is creator, ruling sustainer of all. He holds it all together. He is the Word of God, the hope for all the world His name is lifted higher Jesus your name is lifted higher and we bless you Lord God of the ages the highest of all we met you, your name. 
unmovable God, the firstborn of creation. He is the first, the last, the one who matters most. He is creator, the ruling sustainer of all. He holds it all together. He is the word of God, the hope for all the worlds. His name is lifted higher. Jesus, your name is lifted higher. And we bless you, Lord, God of the ages and highest of all. We magnify you. Your name will be exalted. Exalted. We bless you, Lord. And we bless God of the ages, highest of all, we magnify you. Your name will be exalted, exalted. His name is Jesus. And I tell you, folks, in my journey, I have experienced the scalpel of Dr. Jesus as he has cut away things in my life. And I'm sure that many of us have as well, and we will. But I'd rather experience the scalpel of his love from Dr. Jesus than his sort of judgment. Amen? Father, today, you know every heart. You know every life. You know every single thought from every person online and in this room, and even those that are going to watch this in the archive. Father, I want to be somebody that experiences the scalpel of your love, cutting away everything that displeases and dishonors you and stay the sword of judgment. And I pray this for my brothers and sisters at Glad Tidings Church. In Jesus' name, amen.